Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast series entitled Panopticon Flavored Oat Milk. Um, since this is my first episode, I'd like to make some introductions. Obviously, my name is Sarah, my pronouns are they, she, and I'm a 23-year-old uh, lesbian with a bachelor's degree in sociology and gender studies. So yes, I do have two cats, and I have a deep fascination for sociological theory. Um, as both a socialist and a feminist, I really like taking theories from my undergrad and applying them to pop culture, in case you couldn't tell by the title. The podcast is a school assignment for a cutesy little media design diploma program that I've been taking, and I really hope to maintain it after my class ends. So I'd also just like to say before we get started that I actually am in the middle of one of the nastiest colds, possibly COVID, co possibly like RSV or whatever it is. Um, I have done like 14 COVID tests and they're all coming up negative, but apparently that's happening with where we are right now due to the complete government abandonment going on. So I do want to just give a heads up that uh, my voice is going to be pretty breathy. Um, I'm gonna sound kind of weak, um, but that's on me for saving my recordings up until the last possible second when I'm sick. Um, so yeah, I appreciate your patience with that, and I'm really excited to get into this episode. Today's episode is going to be focusing on the ethics of true crime content in the year 2022. Uh, content warning, it's likely going to involve the discussion of murder, femicide, racism, and sexual violence. So if these topics are too much for you or anything like that, um, I'd rather prioritize your well-being. It's okay to set this one out because there will be more um, uh, with possibly less triggering topics. So the topic at hand. I personally really believe the ethics of true crime has been called into question over the past few years, especially lately, like the last few months, following a surge in the genre's popularity. And I'm not gonna lie, I was sucked into the world of true crime between the years 2018 and 2021. Um, I am ashamed to say that I even attended a live show of the popular true crime podcast, My Favorite Murder in Toronto. Um, if you're on, like, sociology commentary YouTube, then I'm sure that you're very much aware of the YouTube uh, pipeline of teenage boys watching like triggered SJW videos and then they end up in the white supremacist uh, content. Uh, it's a pretty well-known pipeline and to me the true crime YouTube podcast is very similar to that. Um, basically it kind of starts out by stumbling across a highly recommended and even some may say ethical podcast like Serial 
Um, and then soon you find yourself unflinching and enjoying the notorious Bailey Sarian Makeup Murder Monday videos. Hi friends, how are you today? I hope you're having a wonderful day so far. My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's Murder, Mystery, and Makeup Monday! And there's something just so off-putting about watching a wealthy white woman make jokes and corny thumbnails about the brutal murder of somebody's loved one. In recent years, true crime content on YouTube has been gaining incredible popularity. According to a research video by popular YouTuber Ada On Demand, in 2019, true crime YouTube videos were viewed 2 billion times and increased by 30% viewership over 2020. Ada raises an excellent point in their video when they discuss the disturbing lack of media ethics and production law on the YouTube platform. YouTube has created, according to Ada, questionable accessibility of amateur crime reporters to inappropriate products, such as the murder makeup or murder mukbangs. I cannot imagine the compounding grief the families of the deceased must experience now there are individuals out there who are quite literally profiting on the post-mortem exploitation of their loved ones. Uh, as Ada points out, there's zero consent required from the victim's families for YouTubers to cover the often gruesome and traumatizing death in their family. The families rarely, if ever, see a dime from these individuals who are running amok and doing makeup over the storytelling of the worst days of their lives. And of course, these YouTube videos don't hold a candle to the disturbing and ever-present spreading phenomena of Netflix documentaries, true crime podcasts, and the Etsy shops from hell. It goes without saying that true crime documentaries are becoming more popular than ever. And unfortunately, Netflix released a reenactment series about Jeffrey Dahmer a few months ago, and it has caused a significant amount of discourse across social media. The way Ryan Murphy went about gaining consent to dramatize this true and extremely sensitive story is not unique, and it is especially not acceptable. Ryan Murphy claims that he reached out to 20 victims' families and friends throughout the three and a half years it took to prepare for the Netflix Dahmer series. Not a single person responded to them in that process, so they relied, as they quote, very, very heavily on an incredible group of researchers. I don't know about you, but if I was planning on making an extremely graphic and disturbing reaction of a horrific crime against a group of marginalized people, I wouldn't take the family's silence regarding my plans as a go-ahead. This Netflix docuseries about Dahmer was sick enough to recreate the emotions and reactions of victims' family members in court during Dahmer's proceeding without consent. Rita Isbell's brother, Errol Lindsay, age 19, was murdered and cannibalized by Jeffrey Dahmer. She, understandably, had a breakdown in court during the trial, and Ryan Murphy was sick enough to make a recreation of it in his series. I'm not going to show her breakdown, and I'm definitely not going to give Ryan Murphy's show any views, so instead I will read two statements Rita made after the show was released. I don't need to watch it. I lived it. When I saw some of the show, it bothered me, especially when I saw myself. When I saw my name come across the screen and this lady sing for verbatim exactly what I said. If I didn't know any better, I would have thought it was me. Her hair was like mine. She had on the same clothes. That's why it felt like reliving it all over again. Rita revealed that she watched some of the show and it bothered her. She said that watching her court appearance being reenacted brought back all the emotions she was feeling back then. She further claimed that Netflix never contacted her about the show. I feel like Netflix should have asked if we mind or how we felt about making it. They didn't ask me anything. They just did it. Rita also slammed the streaming giant saying, I'm not money hungry, and that's what this show is about. Netflix trying to get paid. 
Rita explained that she could have understood making a show of the horrific tragedy if the victim's children were paid. The victims have children and grandchildren, and if the show is benefiting them in some way, it wouldn't feel so harsh and careless. She exclaimed that she felt sad that Netflix is just making money off this tragedy. That's just greed. And I completely agree with her. You don't have to look hard to find other testimonies given by the families of other victims in other crimes. Many have similar feelings. They've been exploited, re-traumatized, and all without financial or therapeutic compensation. There are people who love and miss the victims, and it is, in my opinion, disrespectful to treat them as flippantly and insensitively as Ryan Murphy did. I turned to the world of academia to see if I could find reasoning for this ongoing cultural obsession with mostly men who murder mostly women. Thankfully, my girlfriend's university held a copy of The Rise of True Crime, 20th Century Murder in American Pop Culture by Jean Murley, or Jean Murley. I didn't have time to go through the entire book, but it gave me pause with the following script. True crime, as it stands, raises a host of difficult, moral, ethical, and cultural questions. Questions that are largely ignored by mainstream producers and consumers. Why is murder as entertainment so readily accepted? Why are we so preoccupied with the sexual violence against women and what is the appeal of the genre for women? What kind of cultural narratives does true crime produce? Why do the vast majority of true crime depictions deal with white, middle to upper class killers and victims, thereby ignoring institutional threats to the lives of black, brown, and indigenous communities? True crime is intensely gendered and white, resulting in the avoidance of portraying crime against other cultures and races. This avoidance can aid in the normalization and institutional insurance of violence against racialized communities. Last summer, I read Highway of Tears by Jessica McDiarmid. I had learned that my close family friend had been impacted by the Highway of Tears. I picked this book up to understand what has happened to these missing and murdered indigenous girls and women. The book, while carefully and lovingly written, was incredibly difficult to get through, as some of the devastating injustices were dealt out intentionally and repeatedly to the women and their families. Just to give a bit of background, according to highwayoftears.org, from 1989 to 2006, nine young women went missing and were found murdered along the 724-kilometer length of Highway 16, which resides in British Columbia, Canada. This highway is now referred to as the Highway of Tears, and all but one of these women were indigenous. In October 2007, the RCMP expanded their number of women in this investigation to 18 and increased their range from only Highway 16 to include parts of Highway 97 and Highway 5. Many people living in British Columbia believe the number of women exceeds 30, but the official Highway of Tears list remains at 18. No new cases have been added to the RCMP since 2006, despite women experiencing continued violence along British Columbia highways, and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls crisis continues to become more dire in Canada. I bring up the Highway of Tears and its name same book because over and over, families of the missing women were turned away by the police. Families were told their missing daughters were runaways or lived high-risk lives and tossed their lives aside. As though these women and girls didn't matter, these families were left to organize and fund their own civilian searches. In McDermott's book, she refers to the phrase over-policed and under-protected. The phrase over-policed and under-protected is often aptly used to describe Indigenous people's relationship to Canadian law enforcement. Across Canada, Indigenous adults make up over a quarter of the prison population, despite making up only 4% of the country's overall population. 
girls and women are particularly overrepresented, accounting for more than 35% of those in federal and provincial prisons, while half the girls at youth correctional facilities are Indigenous. They are disproportionately affected by factors police often target, such as poverty, involvement with child welfare, abuse, addiction, and homelessness. However, the biggest deciding factor in Indigenous incarceration is racism. One advocacy group noted the courts tend to respond to Indigenous girls as though it is inevitable that they will become criminal and that their only salvage is through harsh treatment by the criminal law. It is common for Indigenous girls to be consumed by the youth criminal justice system for minor offensives, public disturbance, shoplifting, and other minor aggressions. The justice system jails them further for being unable to meet impossible conditions imposed upon them. Imagine doing something like breaking a curfew on probation as a result of not having a car, relying on shoddy public transit, and working late in a restaurant. The reality is that Indigenous girls spend their entire teenage lives in prison for offenses white girls might get slapped on the wrist for. Moreover, many Indigenous families are hesitant to ask the police for help, as time and time again the RCMP has failed to intervene or care about Indigenous lives at risk. A study conducted in 2015 set out to determine what was happening between Indigenous communities and Canadian police officers. Canadian police officers are accorded substantial discretionary power in how to best maintain peace and order on the streets. Research is suggesting that among, at the very least, a minority of officers hold the viewpoint that Indigenous people are inherently criminal, violent, and dangerous. To suggest that the racism and bias apparent across our society does not trickle down into the system of policing would be naive. Clearly, the relationship between police and vulnerable Indigenous women and girls is often a poor one, and it has far-reaching repercussions for those most in need of protections. Many are hesitant to go to the police with information or for help when they are in danger, and they are right to be. In some cases, members of law enforcement community are the perpetrators in question. The RCMP's criminal negligence, and at times targeting, has quite literally caused a national crisis of thousands of missing murdered Indigenous women and girls. To bear witness to how the RCMP and criminal court system is stacked against Indigenous communities, do some googling into the ex-judge David William Ramsey, the Colton Bushy case, the RCMP's protection and alleged involvement in the Robert Picton case, the residential schools, and the death of Tina Fontaine. I encourage you to exercise caution and care with these cases. They are all quite recent and speak to the intentional harm carried out by the RCMP and its court systems. It is extremely upsetting, so a massive content warning for femicide, racism, violence against Indigenous people and women, and sexual violence. I would be remiss to continue this essay without mentioning what is written between the lines when police refuse to investigate a missing individual with a quote-unquote high-risk lifestyle. Jessica McDarmid speaks to the phenomenon of a high-risk lifestyle when recalling a statement from a Prince George resident after Alicia Germain, a 15-year-old Indigenous child, was murdered. Alicia was one of the victims of the Highway of Tears murders and labeled as someone who lived a high-risk lifestyle. If a 16-year-old daughter of a city council member has been snatched off the street and murdered, the city would be in an uproar. But Miss Germain was different. She was considered a prostitute. Does anyone really think that because of her lifestyle she deserved to die, or that her death doesn't matter? Mr. Maine was a child, apparently victimized by a long line of adults that she came into contact with. The fact is that our community allows troubled girls to sell their body on the streets. Our society contains men who are willing to pay for sex with minors, and contains a predator that has killed. 
Perhaps if the media was a little more outspoken about the plight of the most vulnerable members of our community, we wouldn't have to worry about the embarrassment of having teenage girls murdered on our streets. And especially with marginalized community members, like we see that the police do not care. The police are not there to support um, us. They are simply there to punish and protect capital. And I think that's why I have such a problem with true crime. Serial killers are not geniuses. They're not brilliant murderers who evade capture. Most of the time, police aren't even looking because they don't care about the victims. Marginalization through race, social class, gender, sexuality, disability, and other things like involvement in sex work or drug use alters how the police respond to a missing person. Don't even get me started on the amount of police officers who are serial killers or domestic abusers during their downtime. Just think about the Golden State Killer who was on a murder rampage for, I think it was about like 40 years or something like that. And he was part of the team, like part of the police force that was looking for him. The incredible amount of police who were involved and aware of Robert Picton's murdering spree and did nothing. Um, I mean, it's, it's not a matter of like a few bad apples in policing. Like this is the way it is designed to work to protect those with capital. Also definitely do not Google police and 40%. Uh, I actually think this is an outdated term, but 40% of police are actually um, domestic abusers. They beat their wives, and I'm pretty sure that number has grown since that uh, um, statistic was taken. So just saying, how are we expected to trust um, the criminal court system and um, the police to protect us when they are the people who cause the most harm and devastation amongst the most vulnerable. Researchers Sa Charid and Jiyang Li published a research article entitled Serial Killers and Their Easy Prey, where they found the following. How do serial killers get away with murder? For years, law enforcement, true crime writers, and journalists have portrayed serial killers as criminal masterminds. But a closer look at serial homicide cases reveals a different story. Serial killers are opportunists who target marginalized and vulnerable populations. Specifically, they target street sex workers who become easy prey because of the precarious legal status they hold. As Penelope Scott once said, Well, I hope this doesn't seem too impolite, but Ted Bundy was just never that fucking bright. He was just sort of charismatic and white, alright? And he was so fucking sure he had the right. But he's ugly, and I'm glad he's dead Cause there was no fucking candle in his pumpkin head You're not special for winning a game with someone who you know True crime writers and journalists have portrayed serial killers as smart and cunning criminals who outsmart police. From true crime accounts of unsolved serial homicide mysteries like Zodiac by Robert Graysmith to TV shows and movies featuring genius serial killers like Hannibal Lecter, our culture is filled with representations of serial killers as criminal masterminds. They are assigned headline-ready nicknames and tracked by police and amateur sleuths, even as the names and lives of their victims are obscured, overlooked, and dismissed. These images are misleading and gloss over the social context of serial killing. 
In reality, serial killers are opportunists who target marginalized and vulnerable populations. These victims' disappearances aren't likely to arouse suspicion among law enforcement or even loved ones. Sex workers, for example, are often vulnerable people whose precarious legal status pushes them into risky contexts where they become easy prey. YouTuber Princess Weeks has had quite a few videos on the ethics of true crime and raised an incredible point on one titled How True Crime Reveals the Corruption and Failures of the Legal System. True crime coverage has revealed the horrifying and willful inadequacy of police departments in the face of marginalized victims. Cases through which the victim is a member of a marginalized community, such as the murders of Colton Bushi, the murder of Trayvon Martin, and the murder of Alyssa Turney, to only name three, have revealed the corruption of the institution of policing. In each of the aforementioned cases, police failed to respond in adequate ways, demonstrating they do not care for marginalized communities and enabling further violence against vulnerable communities. If true crime is produced and consumed with increased care and critical lenses, true crime could be incredibly valuable to supporting victims, their stories, and their loved ones. In cases like the Gabby Petito murder, pressure from social media and true crime viewers caused police to act in cases they previously may not have. What does the Highway of Tears have to do with the ethics of true crime? In my opinion, a lot. You may have heard of the term missing white woman syndrome. Due to the ongoing colonial violence to the Canadian government's long-standing strategic impoverishment of many Indigenous communities, some Indigenous families live in federally regulated poverty. Those with a missing family member often go without the means to take away time from work, travel, print flyers, contact the media, or keep their lives going while coping with the overwhelming panic and grief of missing a young loved one. It is unacceptable that Indigenous communities are forced to take on this massive and devastating feat of finding a missing family member, as white Canadians are provided with entire task, task forces once a missing white woman flashes upon the television of the evening news. So there is nowhere that is more clear about this kind of situation than the Highway of Tears. Uh, 25-year-old Nicole Hoare, she was working as a tree planter and last seen outside of the gas station of Prince George, which is along the Highway of Tears in 2002. So she is, as I'm aware of it, the only white woman who went missing along the Highway of Tears. And obviously the media went up in arms when Nicole went missing. Um, suddenly there was so many eyes on the Highway of Tears. Um, it's talked about in McDermott's book. Nicole's parents came out and said, like, we have been given all of these resources because we are white. Our daughter is missing just like these other women who are indigenous, but she is the only one who has received the kind of support that, uh, is needed. And, like, they called out the racism, the obvious racism. In 2004, Gwen Ifill coined the term missing white woman syndrome to show and highlight the ways that media and police and society responds to a white woman in distress versus um, a woman of color, a black woman, an indigenous woman, a brown woman in distress or in danger. So basically, white women are these damsels in distress, they're helpless, uh, they're met with incredible urgency when they need help, when they're in danger. Um, and as we've seen with the Highway of Tears, uh, as we've seen with the 
almost like play-like response to the suffering of all of the marginalized families, the black families that suffered at the hands of um, Jeffrey Dahmer, how it was made into a theater instead of represented as something devastating and um, something to be held with extreme care like it deserved to be. Even the language and the photos used for women of color um, is extremely different from the language in the photos used to announce that a woman who is white is missing. Gabby Petito is an excellent example. She had entire search teams looking for her, the entire nation held at a pause waiting to hear what was happening to her, where she went, and I think this is the right response when someone is missing and in danger and has obvious signs of foul play. My issue comes in where we do not even have a third of that response for indigenous women who are missing, black women who are missing, brown women who are missing, um, or any kind of other minority group. There is significantly less resource allocation um, when it comes to racialized victims. Uh, police feel less urgency, police blame the victims, they categorize victims through, uh, oh, she was a prostitute, she was an addict. They tried to do their very best to make her life disposable, which is what we saw with the Highway of Tears, where there was a significant amount of indigenous women who were missing and very obvious signs of foul play. It's the same with, with the Dahmer series of police know about it. Police are very aware that there is someone picking on um, a marginalized group that they have shown that they don't care about. Um, and the police do not intervene. If we're going to talk about the Dahmer series, the police were very much aware of what Jeffrey Dahmer was doing. In fact, one of his youngest victims escaped Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and black women in the area saw him, got him help, urged police to take it seriously. And Jeffrey Dahmer shows up and is like, oh my God, no, like this is not what you think it is. And the cops, despite this young boy being covered in blood, like obviously dazed, confused, not knowing what's going on, chose to listen to Jeffrey Dahmer over the voice of the black women who were trying to protect this child. One of my favorite YouTubers, Khadija Mabowi, um, said that language can be used as a weapon and institutions and media continue a belief system based on the dehumanization and marginalization of communities. One of the ways that institutions and media work together is through um, coverage of uh, victims, through coverage of what we consume as a society with uh, regards to violent acts against marginalized communities. How do you contend with that? There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of obvious um, human rights violations, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of misogynoir, and the chronic dehumanization of women of color, black women, indigenous women, their families and their communities and their experiences. It is intentional, it is systemic, and it has to stop. Basically, why I'm making this statement through this first episode of my podcast is a call to action. I don't truly believe 
true crime as it stands right now in its non-critical lens, in its entertainment format, um, is beneficial to victims, is beneficial to marginalized communities. I don't think it does the job that it needs to. I think if you're going to watch true crime, then you have to be extremely careful and extremely critical of what you're watching. I think that the Dahmer series is such an excellent example of when true crime has gone in the opposite direction that it should. That the sensitivity was not there, the family's consent was not there, the funding, putting money back to the community that is affected was not there. I think we as a society are completely consumed by missing white woman syndrome. I want to leave you with that. I want you to, I'm not saying that you have to shame yourself and be like, oh, like I'm a horrible person if I watch true crime. It's, it's not a black and white issue for me. I really think we have to exercise caution and a very critical eye when we're taking in such heavy and sensitive um, material. I think there is a lot to be gained from true crime um, when done right. Um, as Princess Weeks said, true crime reveals the corruption and the failures of law systems and the courts, the police, everybody involved. I think that that is crucial if we're going to move forward as a society to make it equitable and care about each other. But I really don't think that the way we're going about it right now, the re-traumatization and the fetishization of the killers and what they did to their victims, I don't think that's appropriate. And I kind of just want to leave you with that. Um, I know this episode was kind of, ah, because I'm really sick. So I do ask for your forgiveness. Um, and I look forward to the next episode. Um, and yeah, thanks for tuning in and uh, talk soon.